All right, welcome to season three, episode four of the Men at Work podcast. I'm your host, as always, Travis Streb. I've got George Bryant on the show today. I've met George a couple times. He is larger than life, beautiful human. Some of you might know him as a famous chef, author of Paleo Kitchen. Uh, He's also been a Marine. Uh, His story is heartbreaking and beautiful. And that is the majority of our episode today. Uh, When I first met George, he told me a story and um, it scared me to death and I was afraid to tell him mine, which we get into a lot. We talk about story, we talk about bonding over stress and trauma, talk about men and eating disorders, exercise culture, and we talk about stoicism for men and how we may have gotten it a little bit wrong in the modern era. I love George, I love this episode, and I know you will too. Let's jump in. I just kind of love going off the cuff. This is my, okay. I'm already on my fourth interview today. I'm on fire. Wow, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad. The place I actually want to start yeah. is with your story, because it's one of the things that, that I know it sounds trite, but you actually talk about it, you know, a couple of things like your story, how you got addicted to telling it yeah. um, after being, <laughs> after being totally terrified of telling it. Yeah. Um, and so I'd love to start with your version of it and we can, we can yeah, riff man. from there. Yeah. And what I love is that you got to bear witness to part of this. Like that's actually my favorite part of all of this. Mm. Um, yeah. So you know, I like giving the elevator version first, right? The summary. And so, you know, when I really look back, like I grew up in a pretty tumultuous childhood. So drug abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emancipation, social services, divorce, welfare checks, hospitalizations, like you kind of name it. I had all of it going there. And then like basically homeless from like 13 on living in cars or friends' basements and then working. And so, for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm still exploring this one in lots of meditation, I had a drive to not end up or not stay there. And I don't know where that came from, right? Like the first one of my family out, but I never wanted to do drugs or never wanted to, you know, do bad things. I always wanted to work and build something different. And so I got bullied a lot and did it. And so I got to a point where when I was 17, I was like, I got to get out of here. So I forged my parents' signature, joined the Marine Corps, and I went from broken childhood to being rewarded for coming from a broken childhood and then being like, we love you that you're broken. Let's go train you to kill people. Awesome. Um, and so I ended up joining the Marine Corps and I made a really good Marine as most of us do, right? You come with these, you know, unhealed traumas. And so um, that was exciting. That was fun. It was really great. Uh, Napoleon complex took over. I ended up being an honor graduate at boot camp, honor graduate at Marine combat training, honor graduate at my school. And I got myself deployed to Somalia at 19. And um, when you have a, a view of the world of I'm 19, I'm a badass. I can beat anybody. I can do whatever I want. And you walk into Mogadishu or Somalia, you become a two-year-old boy really quickly, like really, really quickly when you see like what the world is like. And so I spent 13 months of my life there. Um, I got injured pretty badly, almost lost my legs, came home, had pretty major surgeries, six of them. And that kind of spiraled things out of control. My bulimia got out of control. I became addicted to opiates. I attempted to take my life and got to a turning point where the Marine Corps was like, hey, you're going to get medically separated. And I was more afraid of going home to nothing than I was of staying in. So I worked to stay in, ended up spending eight more years on active duty in that time, lost my dad to cancer, married and divorced, made a full recovery, crossfitted fitness, all these things, just new addictions and new addictions and new addictions, and then went to Afghanistan in 2010. 
and that's kind of where my life took a turn. Um, I ended up having seven concussions in three years. I had bleeding on my brain, fluid on my brain. And then when I was in Afghanistan, one of my Marines loaded a rifle with my name on a round and stuck it in my mouth uh, because he lost it. And I was the easiest target. And that was a big pivotal moment for me. And so I made a decision that I didn't want to end up like my parents. I was already on that path. I was just changing addictions from drugs to fitness or, um, you know, disconnection to validation and all these things. And so I was like, I'm going to take control of this. I started eating paleo. I started eating clean. I started training. I came home, documented the process, ended up creating a following by doing this in 2010. The Marine Corps said, hey, we're going to medically separate you. It's been 12 years. I fell into being an entrepreneur, but my new addiction became dopamine in business, millions of social media followers, making millions of dollars. And it all came crashing down when my wife was eight months pregnant. We were about three weeks away from bankruptcy. Somehow I was running a multi-million dollar company. Uh, I had a 22 week New York times bestselling book, number one app in the world. And we were losing 50 grand a month because of my self-sabotaging behavior. And so rubber meet the road, come to Jesus conversation after lots of personal development, plant medicine. And I did something everybody told me not to do. And I walked away overnight. I gave away the company. I changed my phone number. I deleted social media and I went dark for three years. I went into my family. And in that time, a few people like, Hey man, will you teach us what you did? And I was like, sure. And it became about them and not me, which was really healthy for my ego. And I helped other people start winning. And my first consulting clients were Men's Health, Titleist, On It, Vital Proteins. Like I had made a name and so it was great, but I also got to learn how to help people out of being about me. And so that was a good couple of years as I rebuilt my family, rebuilt myself, you know, got into men's work. And then about a year ago, my wife's like, hey, baby, it's time. And I knew exactly what she meant. She basically said, you're talking too much at home and it's time to put a voice back into the world. And uh, that means I came pretty far and I was ready to go. And so I came out from behind the scenes and came out online again and started helping a lot more companies ethically build and scale their companies. And so that kind of gets me to now. That's the shortest version I can give you for us to unpack. That's a short version of a long story, man. I know. Um, It's got a lot more twists and turns than I even thought what I've read about and talked to you about and heard other people. So Yeah, man. I think Um, one thing that you said, though, I actually want to pull this thread. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, Stefano Stefano, him and I actually did a podcast together. So we're business partners and we talked about trauma. But what we were talking about was personal development prejudice and getting to the point of like men's work and storytelling and authenticity. and, And what the thread that I learned was, and you knit this in the beginning, is in the beginning, I was afraid of anybody knowing who I was because my core wound was I'm not good enough. If they know who I am, they're going to leave me. And then I end up alone in the first place. Then I was like, well, that's not there. And I got this freedom when I started telling the world I was sexually abused and bulimic. But what I got was I got a control mechanism. I got a control mechanism that I could put on the mask of vulnerability and authenticity, but it could keep you six feet away from my heart because with my story, it never allowed anybody close enough to get into the feeling. The story was the protective measure. And so as I went through these trainings and I went through this work and I taught personal development and I did men's work and consciousness and plant medicine, I was just becoming like an untapped Rolodex of words for protection. And I was living in my head and not my body. And I had that personal development prejudice to where now I was using it as a tool, but what it was really was, was a new addiction. It was a new dopamine hit. Like now people feel bad for me. Now they give me credit. Now they 
like me. And so I was going the opposite way, still in the core wound of I'm afraid they're going to leave me. So let me convince everybody why they should stay. And then, you know, rubber meets the road, life happens, everything. And then that crash was getting back out of the world and like finding the harmony between the two and learning the difference between authenticity and intimacy authenticity and intimacy and knowing when, and I love that John says this, like, I'll never forget. I heard John say this at one point. He's like a good, a good rule of thumb is being able to share what you want to share in two sentences or less. And it was a really, really powerful, profound moment for me. Now my work is checking in with my body and my brain and like asking myself, like, is this coming from a place of lack or need or codependency? Or is this coming from a place of like service connection and giving um, but I think it's a really important distinction because I don't think we talk about how the stories and the storytelling and all of that can become the new path and protective measure. And so that was that was something that you said that I think was really interesting because you were there when I shared mine and John told me to shut up for three days. It was awesome. Well, I mean, it's a it's it is a story that can create connection, right? Totally. A lot of people can either relate or or the opposite effect, which is like what I felt when I heard your story for the first time is like, whoa, well, my story is not worthy. Yeah. Like this guy's story is so heartbreaking and beautiful. I can't even tell mine. Yeah. And so it has the impact of also, you know, other people could be shut down. Um, Yeah. And that, and that, that was an unintended consequence that I didn't understand for a long time. Like there was this point, like I use a lighthouse analogy to teach business, but there was a point where I was so insecure that my light was dimming everybody else's, but yet all I wanted was yours. Like I really wanted yours. I'm like, I want to hug you. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to share my story as a bonding moment. And what I learned and unpacked is that like, even in the military, we don't form camaraderie under good. We form camaraderie under bad. We're like, we hate this. We're exhausted. We don't want to be here, but let's do it together. Like we bond over trauma. And for 12 years, I bonded under stress and trauma. And then I'm like, oh yeah, but the average person, like the healthy man doesn't bond over trauma. It bonds over like being in that moment. And that's something it took me a while, a while to learn, man. It really, really did. I I could imagine. I mean, you seem like you're a quick study. You seem to pick things up quickly and you obviously learned a lot about yourself, but there's a ton in your, in your story. We could probably have a 10 hour episode, Um, but there's a couple of things I wanted to I wanted to ask you about a little more detail because they're, I think a bit less talked about and yeah, you know, one of them is, is the eating disorder piece. Yes. Because I'm a, I'm a father of two daughters, right. And my, my wife uh, was a dancer for many years and, you know, she struggled with that. Um, I don't want my, my daughters to have to go through that, but I, I have generally thought about that as being an issue that women or young girls deal with until I dealt with it yep. as an endurance athlete, Yep. not bulimia, but I dealt with the eating disorder piece. Yeah. The orthorexia. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah all Just constantly, that. constantly worrying about weight. But it, for me, it was like, well, it's easy. Cause I'm a, I was, I was, I was racing road bikes Yep. and going uphill fast was my specialty. So you got to keep your kilos down, sorry, pounds down. If you want to go fast either way, man, I'm just curious what your, 
how that looked for you because it's just such a non non discussed issue it for really men. Really is, dude. It really. You know what's nuts? I. You know what's funny is I think it's discussed. It just doesn't look like we think it's supposed to look. Mm. So like in women, we discuss it by being like, oh, they're not eating or they want to look a certain way. But yet then we re- we reward men for orthorexia and obsession. But it's technically the same thing, right? It's I'm not happy with where I am. And what I learned when I came out about this, I did a post. I, I wrote I wrote this post a long time ago. It was titled Dear Bulimia, You Fought Hard, But I Won. And I'll never forget because I had published on my blog. It was like 25,000 people a month and like 1.5 million people read it in like three days. It was oh. mind blowing. I got almost 5,000 emails because I gave my personal email because I'm like, I'll talk about this with anybody. What I didn't expect was like 95% of the emails were men. And I'm talking 14 years old to 81 years old was the oldest guy who emailed me and struggled with the same thing. But what we look at is we're like, oh, he's committed to the gym. He's just wanting to work out. Like he loves counting his macros. Like he's just taking his supplements and it's like, okay, right? And we reward the behavior. Like we perpetuate the system. And the truth is, is that when I started looking into like the studies and the organizations for eating disorders, after I healed myself, they think that almost 52% of people that struggle are men. It's just unreported because it's considered more socially acceptable. And so, you know, whether you put it into the toxic culture of like man up or suck it up or do it anyways, or you're fat because you're fat, like all of it, anything that tilts so far to an extreme comes from a place of trauma, pain, or an addiction. And so, you know, like for me, what I, what I learned, cause I, I did heal it myself, but what it was is it was a protective measure. It was replacing one with another, a distraction, more dopamine, some sort of validation, some sort of protective measure. And like, when I really get down to it as a child, where did it come from? It came from whenever I was abused or got in trouble, I was then rewarded with food. So I had this association, like every time something was bad or good, I got to eat or I should eat or eating would make me feel better in either instance. And so when I became bulimic, I was 14 yeah, I was 14. Um, I got sexually abused like a year earlier and then I had one of my family members call me fat. It was right after I was invited to my first dance ever. Like I was bullied. My front teeth were knocking out three times. Like I wasn't a popular kid. So somebody asked me to go to a dance and I was so excited. And I had to try to convince my parents to let me rent a suit, you know, and choose that over drugs or abuse or, you know, whatever was coming up in the moment. And I did, but then like the guy made a comment that, I couldn't rent that suit because the pants I needed, the jacket was too big because they were so off because I was so overweight. And then my parents were like, that's an inconvenience because he's fat. I'll never forget. I went home that night. I was so upset. I was crying. I was so sad. And I got nauseous. Like I was so upset. I was nauseous and I threw up. I didn't make myself throw up. I was just so upset. But when I threw up, I felt better. And in that moment, I felt better because I had a semblance of control over my situation. And so that was the day that it started. And I'll never forget it because the next time I was upset, I was like, I know what'll make me feel better. So I'd get upset, I'd go eat and I'm like, oh, I feel better, I feel better. And then I'd have guilt and I'm like, no, no, I know how to get it back. And then I would purge and then I would purge. And it was like the semblance of control in my own world. And I think really what it boiled down to is number one, I had no tools on what like EQ was or emotions or modulation. And then number two is I lived in this world where everything around me felt unsafe. And so it gave me an escape into some semblance of safety and self. Like I wanted to connect with myself. And so, you know, as an adult now, I talk about this a lot. And I I think really like communication, self-awareness, like 
grace, empathy, forgiveness, and like understanding that, you know, success in life comes from the boring things we do every day, not the extremes. Right. And, you know, I was living in these extremes. And I think with men in today's world, we reward the extremes like, oh, you push so hard. You won the race. You're going to get better. Oh, you ran through a broken leg. You do it. And I'm like, but they're all symptoms of the same thing. And most of the time it comes down to not feeling good enough. And so the come from is very important to me, but I also think, you know, there's complicit, there's complicitness in it that we reward that behavior, but there's also complacency on our part by when we're pursuing these goals and this greatness that we don't talk about, you know, the days that it's hard or that I'm sad today, or that like, I don't know why I upset my wife or why I don't want to go or why I'm being hard on myself. And so I think, part of the solution is, is both sides of us in the world, you know, having an authentic expression of our emotion or what we're experiencing. Like, I don't feel like working out today. I'm not going to, and I'm totally okay with that. But then also having it on the other side of like having accurate measuring sticks and realizing that like the value of and, and men in particular is not predicated on like how extreme they can be and like how tough they can be. It's basically like how human can they be? And like accepting that for where it is, is progress. And so, yeah, it's, it's something that it rocked me, man. Like to be really frank, I I was shocked when I got those emails. I was shocked. I felt so alone for so many years, like so alone. Like I was struggling. I was struggling with addiction, opiate addiction. I was struggling with bulimia. I was purging in porta potties in Afghanistan. And it's not like, oh yeah, I'm a tattooed Marine in Afghanistan. Let me go tell my boss that I'm bulimic, right? Like that wasn't really an option. (laughs) And then it's funny though, because I was hiding my bulimia with extreme orthorexia and obsession with working out. Like I was crossfitting. I was a top hundred CrossFit athlete. I was powerlifting. I was doing endurance races and I was like winning. And so I was like, where's the best place to hide? Plain sight. Everyone's like, everything's fine. Look, he's winning. Look how much he cares about his health. And I was like, I'm working out six hours a day. Like there is no part of that unless I'm getting paid as a professional athlete with a team and my life is on the line that that is healthy. And so I think that there's, that that's kind of like how I see it with the mixture of like, what's there. I think there's two sides to the coin. There's a side that like, we get to recognize, you know, what's normal, what's an even keel, what is like proper modulation without the crazy swings and extremes. And then I think we also have a responsibility of self to set realistic goals and expectations and focus on the progress versus the perfection. And knowing that in those moments, it's completely okay to have grace and presence and forgiveness and self-forgiveness and then be like, Hey, Travis, Hey man, like I'm struggling a little bit today. Like I'm struggling, man. And then you'd be like, yeah, man, me too. Or I've been there or, and like having that ability to authentically express our feelings and emotions and not live in this dopamine addicted, distracted society on social media. That's my soapbox. Yeah. I mean, I can relate. I can relate to pieces of that. Yeah. In, in my own story. And, and, um, I, I know I, I, I won't say so much what I see in other people, but I see, I saw a lot of that in, in myself and it, it, part of it was not the, the healing part of it was to get, start getting friendly with what was actually true. Yep. So you talked about this, you said, well, I don't actually feel like working out. Yeah. So instead of disavowing, like that's bullshit, keep pushing through like we do with, you know, with all the kind of bro culture, like just, it's like, no, there's like, there's a part of you that just doesn't want to do this. 
And there's a time when you like, yeah, you have to be balanced. Like, well, you haven't worked out for three months though. So maybe it is time to push past the, you know, yep. the resistance. But that, that idea that you have to get friendly with the, those parts of ourselves. And when you talk about grace and, and presence and love and truth, those in my experience, we tend to, you know, we'll read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about me for sure. You know, totally. years ago, you read those things. You're like, oh, how do I give that to other people? Yep. Instead of how do you bring that back home? And how do you actually, how do you practice grace with yourself? How do you practice presence with yourself? And so um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that in the context of like, you know, you're fighting battles overseas as a Marine. Totally. How do you start to build a relationship with yourself when you're so disconnected? Yeah. Oh, dude, that is such a good question. That is such a good question. So I think the first thing for me is like what we talk about um, and what I think about, like looking back, hindsight's 2020, right? It's really crystal clear for me now. Um, But the first thing was getting comfortable being in whatever situation I was in, right? Like, and so one of the gifts of being in the military, I'll call it a silver lining, not a gift. One of the silver linings of being in the military and being deployed is I can't quit. I can't come home. I can't stop training. I can't be like, I don't want to go out or somebody's shooting. Let me just freeze. Like you have this external pressure of progress and momentum. So the one thing, the one silver lining is in the military is that stagnation is not an option. You can't pause and freeze. And so there are times where I was emotionally triggered. Like I was disconnected from what was happening, but you still get the body and the emotion. But due to the training and everything going on, you don't just freeze, sit there and well up in it. You take an action and move forward. And there's a lot of truth to that when it comes to you know life and where we are. And so what I learned over there was, I'm here no matter what. I can't quit. I can't get on a plane and go home. And I can't just walk out the gate and be like, here's my luggage. Send me back to the US of A. It was like, I'm here. And so the first thing that I think is really, really important is to do an inventory of like, what is actually here? Like a current state. Like if you're into stoicism, it's memento mori. If you're into consciousness, it's checking with your mind, body, and soul. Like if you're into the meditation, it's being moment to moment, right? But it's like, what is actually happening like in my perpetuated reality of what's going on and so it's like okay i'm here i'm 30 pounds overweight i'm struggling with an eating disorder i currently am beating myself up like this is what's going on this is what's triggering me got it and for me and i can only talk about me so i don't sound like i'm on a soapbox for me a lot of my pain and challenges came from denying what was in my space Mm. It was pretending like my favorite question that a teacher ever asked me is what are you pretending not to know or what are you pretending not to see? And that question hits me every single time. And so now I look at that and I look back, I'm like, there were things that were showing up because I was putting blinders on to them being in my life. And so doing that inventory was the first thing. So I call it awareness. The second step is acceptance. And I think that there's a really, really, really important point to be made about acceptance. Acceptance does not mean that you are happy where you are. Acceptance means you are aware of where you are. And that is a very drastic difference. Like forgiveness is not, you know, forgetting. Forgiveness is remembering and moving forward, right? Like that's, you know, these things that people talk about. Awareness 
you get the picture, but then you have to accept, you have to accept like, oh, this is where I am. This is the starting line of my race. And you have to do it with grace. You got to forgive yourself. No fault, no blame, no guilt, no shame. Right. And so in that moment, it's not like a moment to moment thing. It, it's a choice. Like forgiveness is a active choice. Momentum is an active choice. Like movement is a choice. And so you become aware, then you accept. And then once you accept, it's like, okay, no, like I get it. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to struggle in eating disorder. I don't want to be disconnected. I don't want to, you know, numb out with the television or numb out with social media. What I want is this. Okay, got it. Well, this is where I am. I've forgiven myself. And then the next thing I go to is action. If that's the case and that's what I want, what is one thing that I can do right now or today that even if everything else goes to awry will move me one step closer to that? realization or to that moment. And it's like, I can't beat bulimia overnight. I can't lose 30 pounds overnight, but I can pick up eight ounces of water and go for a five minute walk. I can, you know, get off my computer and go do breath work outside. I can get off my computer, go hug my wife and compliment her. I can go spend 20 minutes with my kids and be as present as possible. I can go journal and write about my past or forgive myself, or I can go write a letter to my parents. Like there's an action that can be taken once we've forgiven. And then after that, it's accountability. And this is, I think, the biggest breakthrough for me, Travis, and everything that I did. My biggest enemy is the echo chamber of my brain, right? That is my biggest enemy because my brain knows my weaknesses, my strengths, my insecurities, my stories. But when my brain becomes neutralized is when I speak it into existence or I share it with somebody like you. And I'm like, hey, man, this is, and by the time I'm talking, I'm like, did I really just say that? And you're like, well, is there a different interpretation? And then what it really does is it really starts to bring into the present, like what is really there? Not the story, not the, my world is ending. My wife didn't text me back. The whole world is collapsing. I'm going to sabotage into this moment. Or it's like, you're like, bro, did her phone die? I'm like, oh, that's a possibility. Oh, I didn't think about that. Right. And you're like, yeah, are you? you realizing these codependent traits? I'm like, oh no, what are you talking about, right? But it's bringing this, bringing life to it is I think the secret. So the four steps, and I, I just know this because I used to teach it. Those are the mm-hmm. four steps I went through. It was awareness, acceptance, action, and then accountability. And what that gave me was basically, I'm like, okay, I'm about to go run a race. And you're like, cool. I'm like, here's the course. Here's how you're going to get there. I have all the ingredients. And then with those ingredients, I have choices to make, right? But I'm not blind. I'm not going blind. I'm not like, oh, it's going to fix itself. I'm in a position of power or sovereignty. And it's like, okay, this is what I have. I don't like this. I'm going to do this. I've forgiven myself. I can move forward. And so when I say forgiveness or acceptance, what it basically is, it's the go gun right? It's the race is starting the moment you get that point. And I'm like, you can't start the race if you're literally like, well, the last race, the last race, the last race. I'm like, no, 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 no. This one, like the gun's about to go off, right? And let's go. And so um, that's what it was for me. And I, I practiced this a lot in the Marine Corps and I actually got in trouble a lot. I got a lot of written ups for like caring about my Marines and being too close to them and sharing things that weren't supposed to be shared and not having tact. And I'm like, no, my friend just got killed. Like, I'm sorry, I can't like man up. Like, I'm thinking about Kathy and his three kids right now in this moment. And I was like, and he deserves that. And so it was one of those things that it was forged under fire, but it's so applicable today. It's so applicable today. So that's how I kind of navigated that, man. Uh, navigated is, a, um, that sounds like a minefield, man, honestly, and no, no military pun attended there, but yeah. Um, the amount of 
the amount of navigating, as you put it, you've had to do is, is huge. And um, to even, for, I have to imagine that confronting emotions at a, at a, at a, in a situation where people are actually dying, right? Yeah. It's not, you know, I, I work a lot in the corporate world and there's not a lot of, not a lot of that. There's a lot of, a lot of emergencies and things that feel urgent, but so you've had to navigate it through that. And, and in, in my opinion, you've done it quite beautifully having, you know, having actually met you in person and, and being able to feel you for, but for guys out there that are like, well, I don't really have that level of trauma. I don't have that. Like how, how do you start to dig into the idea that there might be some residual, there might be some stuff to get aware of, even if you think there isn't. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is such a, and first off, thank you for that acknowledgement, man. Like, um, I really appreciate your perspective and, and, and I've actually never talked about a lot of this, like this one in particular, I came to this realization yesterday in my meditation, like yesterday. It's fresh. It's so fresh. And it, and it, and I talked to Stephanos about it. We did like an hour talk about it. And um, it's actually in regards to your questions, like when it comes to residual, right? Like, and what I love about Stephanos, uh, Stephanos Stefanos, for those listening, one of my business partners and dear friends, you know, there's a few things that he always says that like, is like an annoying chihuahua in the back of my brain every time something <laughs> comes up. And I love him because we're like, you know, work husbands and life husbands. But, you know, he always tells me like, if you want to deepen your practice, you have to, de- if you want to deepen your service, you have to deepen your practice. Right. Mm. And then another one that nails me every time is your body never lies. Your body never lies. And I think in today's day and age, what happens is we live in our head, especially in the male side of things. Like, what are we doing? What are we accomplishing? What are we measuring against? And a lot of times we forget to drop into our bodies and it's either consciously done or subconsciously avoided. And for myself included, what'll happen is I'll feel a residual. Like I'll feel something in my body. And instead of being like, oh, the check engine lights on, what is it? I'm like, what can I do right now to not feel this? Oh, I'm going to go work out. Oh, I'm going to record a video. Oh, I'm going to get on a call, right? Instead of giving it a moment and be like, hey, what are you? Like just the acknowledgement that it's there is most of the time enough to create the awareness and the distinction. Now, here's why I'm saying this, because our bodies will never lie. Uh, It's in tune, it's source, it's power, it's intuition, it's alignment, it's whatever you want to call it. But your spidey senses are never wrong. And so when your wife is about to talk to you and there's a pause and you get something in your gut that is telling you that it has nothing to do with what she's about to say, but you have residual something to be explored, to be talked about. When Travis and I are talking and Travis said, when I met you, there wasn't space for my story. I got nauseous because I know the consequences of how I used to show up. And it was unintended based on what I wanted. And I also know that the only option is to just do it differently today, right? But there's all these feelings that come up. And so for me, you know, my wife breaks this down really well when I get upset. (laughs) She says things to me, which are great, but um, she'll say things like, hey, you're in your crap, right? Or you're in your stuff, right? And like, I'll go, no, I'm not, I'm doing. And she's like, you're a purple dinosaur. And I'll just calm down and I'll just be silent. She's like, notice how you didn't respond. I'm like, oh, you got me again. Oh, you got me again, right? And it's always her way of reminding me that if she says something to me and it doesn't land, I have no reaction. If she says something and I lands, I react, I amplify, I up, which means there's some residuals in me. And so 
being in your body is number one and creating space to be in your body. I believe one of the missing moments for men in today's day is solitude. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not talked about. I feel like it's not celebrated. I feel like it's not encouraged or taught, but yet that's where we derive our sovereignty. That's where we drop into our power. That's where we work on our awareness of codependency and habits and validation and ego and everything. Like when I met you, like just for everybody listening, if you haven't met Travis, Travis makes you feel safe from a hundred yards away before you even make eye contact because you're solid and you're there and you're in your heart. Now, do I know that you're there all the time? No, you work on getting there all the time. We all do. Right. But in that moment, when I met you, I was like, I can give you my soul and I will be completely safe. And you were practicing silence. You you were like literally there and it changed the way that I show up, but that comes from practice. And so I think it's one of the lost arts. And so like I read stoicism, philosophy, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Like I I, I read all of it. I listen to all of it. The single-handed biggest needle mover in my entire life is alone time. It's alone time. And it's something that I'm afraid of. And so I do it more. I used to be afraid of cold then I did cold therapy. Now it doesn't even do anything for me. Right. And I was like, but what's the next one? It's alone time and alone time, meaning like no phone, no book, no pen, no paper, like me in the moment, me in the woods, me on a walk, me somewhere else. And so I've been able to now find and heal by being in whatever's coming up in that alone time. So like if my body gives me something, I do the exact opposite of what I want to do. And instead of disconnect online, I go connect to my body, right? I'll go for a five minute walk. I'll go do a round of breath work. I'll literally go put my hand on my belly and look at my belly and be like, what is that? Like, what are you? Like, what are you trying to tell me? And sometimes just the question makes it go away. Other times it's there for five days. But what I've learned is that the, as long as we acknowledge its existence and move forward, we're working through it. When we deny its existence and we move forward, we're waiting for it to explode in our face. And so full closed loop on this Zygarnik effect that I opened with what this realization was yesterday, that's all applicable. The reason I was avoiding diving into the feelings in my body was because I had a misguided belief that in order for my healing to be effective, the modality had to match the level of the trauma. So for example, I have done men's work with Travis. Travis has been in the room. Travis has been witness to me. I have been witness to Travis. I will talk about my experience. I experienced sexual trauma. I've lost 20 Marines. I've witnessed three suicides. When I was abused as a child, I was abused. And then I was blamed for causing the abuse. So in my life, in my wife, when my wife has an altercation in the world and she comes home and tells me I side with the abuser by default because I, have, I had unhealed trauma because in my life, when you were abused, it was your fault. And so when my wife comes home and she's like, somebody was just rude to me, I was like, are you sure it was them? Not really mm-hmm. like the best answer, but I had to dive into it. And we've worked on it immensely. We communicate great now. And like, as I've gone through that, but I've come to that awareness. But now when I'm coming to do this work, I come to men's work with Travis. And instead of coming in and being like, okay, I just need some realizations. I come in like a bull in the China shop because my belief is that I have to be in the trauma at the same level that it was caused to be met with a solution to dissipate Mm -hmm. it. And so I spent over seven figures 
and eight years of work to get to the point that my secret was simplicity, boring, alone time. And that's where my healing came. And so I would go to men's work with Travis. And I remember, I was like, John, and he's like, you're not allowed to talk for three days. And I was like, great. And it was, I remember that. Yeah. And it was amazing. Right. And then we come out of that week and I'm great. I'm grounded. I'm in my body. Right. And I felt it for a moment. And then I came home and I was like, yeah, but it wasn't enough. It didn't hurt bad enough. I didn't cry enough. I didn't go deep enough. And my trauma had me convinced that the level of work I was done wasn't enough to unthread the trauma. When in actuality, all the work was already done, it was an acceptance and awareness that I had the tools and it didn't have to be beat into me or broken into me. I just had to have the distinction. And so as I've started to look through it, I've started to realize that I had this broken belief from my trauma and from my story that the only way I would grow is if I made this new measuring stick in my healing, like I had the broken measuring stick in my trauma, right? And so the not good enough found a new way. And it was like, well, you're not healing good enough. You're not practicing deep enough. You're not breathing hard enough. You're not expressing fully enough. And then it hit me. I watched this movie four weeks ago. It's called Chasing the Present on Apple TV. And it was the leading professor in the country on duality. And I'll never forget, and I've found most of my healing comes from simplicity. And this is what got me. And this is what created the distinction. The guy who made that movie is an entrepreneur who was super successful, was happy, like 20 X his business, was more disconnected, miserable, and depressed than he'd ever been. So we went on this journey to find healing. Eastern, Western, philosophical, quantum physics, you know, Buddhism, meditation, presence, all of it. And he documented it all. And he's sitting down with this professor of duality. And he asked him one question. The press of reality says, who are you? And so I'm playing along on my TV. I'm sitting here alone, right? My family's out of town. I was alone. And I'm like, I'm playing along. I'm like, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a husband. I'm a father, right? And I start rattling it, right? And so the professor looked at him and he's like, okay, were you born a husband, a father, and an entrepreneur? And the guy's like, well, no. He's like, well, who are you? So then I play around again. I'm like, well, I'm loving. I'm passionate. I'm trusting. I'm funny. And I go right to states of being, right? He's like, okay, cool. He's like, are you funny right now? Are you loving right now? Are you loving in every moment? Were you born loving? Were you loving yesterday? Were you laughing yesterday? Were you sad yesterday? And he's like, well, no, I guess not. And he's like, well, then who are you? And then he paused for like 20 seconds in the movie. Felt like an eternity. And in that moment, I broke down in tears. Mm. This was four weeks ago. I bawled. And he said, you're who you choose to be right now. And as simple as that sounds, the way that it was explained based on my interpretation of hearing it was like, whoa. And so I sat there and I broke out into tears. And Travis, it felt like you poured 150 degree warm love water down my throat and filled every ounce of my body. I paused the movie. I stared at the ceiling for almost two hours and I giggled for like two hours, like childlike, playful, giggling. And I just kept telling myself every moment, I just want to be joyful and playful. And so like moment to moment, I would giggle and giggle and giggle and giggle. Since that day, I have probably asked myself 25,000 times, who am I? Every single time I'm triggered. I have it in my body. Who am I? 
I'm doubting myself. Who am I? And it's a really grounding anchor for me. But it dissected that whole thing of like, I'm in my life. Something's not working. I haven't experienced trauma, but I feel this way. I'm showing up this way and I don't want to be this way. And I'm like, that question is a ripcord to 30,000 feet. And it's a slow down, become aware, choose to respond versus react. And it's so grounding for me. And like that all came to me in like the last month, but it probably has had the single biggest needle mover in anything that I've done. Business, life, relationships, parenting, wife, team in a matter of weeks. That's such a beautiful practice and a nice distillation of where we're at. I remember doing a practice around that, that same concept a couple of years ago, sitting across from another, another guy. And um, we just took turns asking the question, who are you? And there'd be an answer. And then who are you really? And it wasn't a judge, a judgy question. But it was just trying to scratch at that idea that you're talking about, which is you are who you choose to be moment to moment, as you know, you talked about the moment unfolds fresh every time. And it's such a beautiful thing to what a beautiful state to be in. Mm-hmm. And especially for a man to be able to, to make decisions, to take action, to love, to feel from that place where every moment is actually fresh. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you had the conversation with Stephanos yesterday. You watched the movie four weeks ago. It feels like this conversation was serendipitous between me and you, George, but there's, there's a couple of threads that you started to pull that I actually want to jump back into. Yeah, I would love to. And the, the first one is you talked about how you studied stoicism Yeah. and, um, you don't strike me actually as uh, like a traditional stoic mm-hmm. and, and, and in, in a good way. Yeah. Cause stoicism is how I identified myself. Yeah. But it was like this kind of pancake flat dead yep. stoicism where there's like, there's no expression, there's no emoting, there's no yep. feeling, but there's like this kind of depth, but it was not depth. It's just nope. flatness. Yep. And I, you know, I, maybe you and I can tease out together, but like the difference between stoicism and depth to me is that beautiful, expressive feeling love side of a man in particular, because stoicism is so in vogue right now, but I think it's getting, it's getting misinterpreted as like, don't let anything in, just be a wall. I can't imagine anybody that wants to interact with that. No. And what I think is so nuts is like, this is what I told myself, right? Like, so what is being perpetuated is somebody's interpretation of stoicism. Mm. But if you go all the way back to the teachings and like get into Seneca being a slave, believing this way, Seneca never said, I don't feel Seneca said, I accept how I feel. And in spite of those feelings aware that they exist, I choose to act differently. But yet we're like, oh, let's play it in the disconnected world that we're in. No, this means that you don't respond. You don't modulate. You don't show emotion. You don't express, right? But then when you like go look at it, like these men expressed, they gave away their fortunes to give gratitude. They gave away love. They brought people into their homes to create connection. And what they said is that I'm here committed to you. And in order for me to be present, 
I have to acknowledge what shows up in my life and realize that I'm 100% responsible for how I respond. And like, that's the level that I get to because I listen to these things and I read these things and I look at them and I was like, yes, that's an amazing principle to have. Acknowledge how I'm feeling, check in with what that is, share it if it improves upon the silence or be aware of it and act in accordance to create something different, right? Like, and when we think about the times, like we're not, we're, let's talk about 300 or talk about invading countries or talking about, you know, countries being torn down from the middle of it. They're basically like, we have to work on ourselves daily to be able to withstand and stand with structure in the state of the world. And like, that's my interpretation of it. Like, I'm like, give me that and let me get there through expression. Like I had an ugly cry with my wife yesterday. Like you would not believe she came home from a theta healing and she came up to me and she said, I realized that when you blame me, when I get into an altercation for somebody, it's because your wounded little boy is thinking it's your fault. And she grabbed my hand and I said, yes, and I'm so sorry. And I lost it. And the moment I was purged and clear and in that moment with her, I looked her dead in the eye, like solid, aware of where I am, knowing that that's not who I am. It's something I experience. And in this moment, I can choose to be who I want to be. And I just looked her dead in the eye of like, I got you because I've got me. And she just melted and hugged me. Yeah. And not hugged me like, oh, she's giving this little boy, like hug me like I'm holding you and thank you for creating that moment with me. Like that's stoicism for me. It's being able to express and emote and to modulate and come back to the present moment with sovereignty. Whew. Man, I, I, uh, I love that. I yeah, love I'm, that. Depth. I'm like, I'm my heart, my, I'm, I'm a cry. I'm a tear away right now. Like my heart is like beating like that one, that one hit because Travis, what happened was, is when I started getting into stoicism, I was trying to find ways to put meaning on how I was feeling. I was trying to find ways to put meaning on like, I've done all this work. Why isn't it different? Why isn't mm. it different? Why <laughs> isn't it different? Right. But what in that process and closing some of these loops, I realized that I was looking at it differently and I was disconnected from myself. And so what stoicism ended up giving me instead of like teaching me how to be a wall was it taught me how to be present and look at the current situations and see what was right in front of me. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what it is. And, you know, truth be told, some of the best Stoics in the world, all their writings were destroyed anyways, you know? And so I just think that it's, it's kind of a, a part of it. And I, and I love that part of it. Like I reference it because like, I, I, I listen to some of the things and like some of the things Marcus Aurelius said and Seneca said, and some of the, the lesser known Stoics, like, I read those and I hear those and I listen to those and it feels like my soul is vibrating on a level of consciousness that I've never felt. Like we don't have a lot of like traditional like philosophers or teachers of our time that like can in like two sentences like rock your entire existence and question reality. And like, I love where those things pull me, right? Like those things pull me there. And like, I think the comparison too is like, we're talking about stoicism before newspapers existed, before news existed, before dopamine and social media. And so the capacity of their lives was a lot of solitude to begin with. And then we're trying to practice stoicism in a world where we give ourselves less than five minutes of alone time, 
but yet we're like, oh, let's be a wall like them. I'm like, well, you missed the fact that they sat with that emotion for 12 hours yeah. a day for 37 days in a row before they wrote the quote that told you to stand there with structure. Like they felt it for 36 days to be able to have the clarity. So we can't take the tweetable, plug it into our brain like Neo and expect to be able to fly a helicopter tomorrow. And I think that's the part where I look at it and I grab the pieces that like help me ring true of like being practicing to being a man like you and like John and the people that I look up to and the people that I'm out with. And I'm on the level, but I, there's things that I like to pick up from every people and that practice of like, yeah, like I really think it's good to teach people to not bend and bow to resistance, to not break when it gets hard, to realize that emotions are something we catch, but they're not permanent. You can let them go as quick as you catch them. You know, like, I think those things are really, really important to get to whatever path you take to get there. And I think stoicism just gives a, a shortcut for some of the ways. Yeah. And it, it does one. It's a, I love how you've brought that back to the, the most ancient versions of it though. Cause there's so much, there's a lot of value in modern day philosophers, in my opinion, and a lot yeah. of great translations that have uh, from some really ancient works that may have been lost. So I don't want to, I don't no, want to no, walk no. all over it. It's the way, you know, but the way that it was described to me in it, by a teacher was it's it's like you're a cat so your 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 body is super responsive but it's it's supple like it mm-hmm. it's malleable but at a moment's notice you can spring into action yep and so it's it's as opposed to it being like you're this like a wall <laughs> yeah 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 um so but i th- i think too sorry i i go totally ahead, cut you off i was gonna apologize but i cut you off so it does not say sorry for i just chose to do it because <laughs> i got excited <laughs> being integrous with myself the thing about the cat thing is that cats respond they don't react it looks like they're reacting but they are so present and hyper vigilant that it is a intentional response And I think that that's the deepest part of that analogy. It's like cats don't survive and they are not nimble and they can't do what they do because they react. It's because they are in a moment's notice so present and hypervigilant. They take in all the factors and choose how to respond to always land on their feet. That's um, so. So then as we take this conversation home, it sounds like the the message for men out there is to how do you become more like a cat? It's funny. My, my spirit animal is a, a jaguar. It's really funny now that I think about it. That happened on a ayahuasca experience. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you have one. Yeah. Um, George, man, I, I, uh, I wish we had another five hours. Um, you know, I think we'll, we'll, I don't have to bring you on mine. I think we can just do it anyways. Those are my favorite ones. We could just, we'll just jump, just jump back into a five hour marathon. Maybe do some time in solitude in the middle of it, come back. That's so good. Have That's some epiphanies. So yeah, that, I think, I think the one, th- not thread, and it's not open, but I'm going to open it now to end yeah. it real quick. Um, when we talk about solitude, I said the, the one of, in my opinion, and, and by the way, for anybody listening to this, I am not on a soapbox. Like, let me just tell you right now, if I degrade myself on zero to a hundred of being like a hundred being woke and zero being like broken, not broken, but ready to go. I'm at like 3.1, <laughs> right? I talk about it like I'm at hundred because I have that blind optimism in my practice, but like, that's where I am. I will be a student for life. So let me just, if you're like, oh, this guy, no, I do not have it all together. This is just how I choose to see it every day for me. Um, but in that lens, 
for me personally, given the outside resistance that I've had and the trauma that I've had and the stakes being so high, alone time was number one. Alone time, solitude, intentional solitude. Not like, oh, I'm alone because everybody left. Like I'm being intentional about going to explore that option, that time, that thought, that feeling. But then the other tide is controlled resistance. And by controlled resistance, it's understanding temperance. Mm. And I have a very wise friend and teacher, Dr. Jeff Spencer, who is an Olympian. He's responsible for 100 gold medals, Tiger Woods coach, Lance Armstrong's coach. All he does is work on mindset. That's it. And he said this to me. He said, Olympians are Olympians because they only train till 70% until the day of the Olympics. And he's like, temperance is always going to be your secret. And so with that, I think the two biggest tools that I could give anybody is sit alone for 30 minutes a day and sweat under low resistance for 30 minutes a day, but have the intentionality and discipline to sit the whole 30 minutes and to actually stop the resistance at 30 minutes. Uh, That's a beautiful polarity to play with, man, Um, and a great place for us to cap it off. So... I don't want, I don't need to give you a whole spiel. I'm going to link up everything about George in the show notes. Um, is there anything you want to share about where people can find you if they don't want to go look in my show notes? Yeah, 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 yeah. So first, everybody, thank you for giving me the gift I can't give back to you, which is time. Um, mucho, mucho gracias. Appreciated. Um, the easiest place uh, is my website. It's mindofgeorge.com, www.mindofgeorge.com. And I know it sounds like it belongs in a straitjacket, which it probably does. So I'll just <laughs> document those thoughts on a podcast. Um, but anything is linked there. Any resources I have, if I can help you in any way with your life, your business, your mindset, your anything, we have a lot of options there for free. Um, and let us know how we can serve and support you. So thank you so much. But yeah, it's Mind of George and the podcast is the Mind of George show. Beautiful, man. George, um, I wish we would do this in person. I'll be able to cross the border at some point. We'll Thanks for being on Men at Work. I love you, brother. Love you. And, Thank um, you so much. Yeah. Go, go be blessed with your family. Yeah, I will. Thanks, man. All right. Bye. Yeah. Whew. All right. That was season three, episode four. And Mr. George Bryant, a lot packed into those 45 minutes. I hope you loved it. If you did, you know what to do. Go and leave me a rating or some feedback on my website. I always love to hear from you. And stay tuned for episode five coming at you shortly. 